Well, now I've got stage fright, Ben. <laughs> we can cut this all out. All of it. I'm Benjamin, and I don't watch movies. And I'm Luke, and I do. This episode's movie is Casablanca. So why don't you talk about why we're doing this? Why are we doing this, Ben? Wait, <laughs> wait. That's right, to make you watch movies and trick you into seeing things. So, since you've never watched basically any movie past, what, 1985? Uh, I think 1997 might be a good cutoff here. Because you've never seen any movies past 1997, your opportunity to make sure that you actually catch up on pop culture and all those wonderful things you missed out on. So we're starting with a movie from 1942. Because that makes sense somehow. As it turns out, 1997 was the year Alien Resurrection came out, and it made I was so disappointed with it, I just never watched another movie again. You know, you should have just told me that in the first place, because that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and I probably would never have questioned that motive, ever. Because seriously, that movie. Oh, that movie. The first one was so good, and I watched three more. That describes many movie franchises. I mean, seriously, Rocky, Rambo. There, there are so many that I could describe. And as I say this, I'm realizing a frightening number of them star Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> but yeah, so our first movie, Casablanca. 1942 film, Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, absolute classic. I guess let's start off with talking about general opinions. What did you think of the movie, Ben? I was pleasantly surprised. Pleasantly surprised? You, that's yeah, how little I've... you trust me in? <laughs> I know we talked about before about how I have kind of maybe a too bad opinion of older movies. I guess, I guess I expected it to be boring, and it was not. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Um, specifically, did you like or dislike about it? I also didn't expect it to be a Nazi movie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> not only that, but it's a Nazi movie that takes place in the time that it's actually released. Right. It's one of the first Nazi movies I can think of. <laughs> it's just weird because you know you see the movie and it comes out in 1942 and they're talking about in world war these things happened that in the time of this movie's release happening it's almost um, like they start they made this movie knowing that it was still going to be watched in 70 years one of the the only things i looked up about the movie because you told me not to look anything up was the song that the german soldiers were singing in the cafe and it actually has an interesting story really because i actually don't know that song well, I know the, that they the wanted to, there was a is, uh, to use. I know that they didn't. There was a song they wanted to use that they didn't. I know because it was still under international copyright by the Nazis. <laughs> that was, that's that. Yeah, that's what I thought was so amusing about it. That the, I guess the Axis powers were still respecting, or neutral countries were still respecting Germany's copyright laws, so they wouldn't have been able to show it in Switzerland. Swiss when everything. So they replaced whatever the other song was. I forget what it was called. It was a popular song at the time, like a newer song. Um, but the song that they'd used was Die Wacht am Rhein, which is about the historical enmity between France and Germany. So pretty apropos there, then. Yeah. Yeah, it was still a really appropriate song. Yeah. And then I spent um, like an hour listening to old Prussian music on YouTube and ignoring the comments where there were people spouting off really terrible opinions, which never read the comments anyway. So 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically the internet in a nutshell. Never read the comments. <laughs> I don't even know when that started, but for some some reason, I think comment threads just became universally terrible. I keep holding on the hope that there was some golden age of internet comments back when I first did. I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah, but way back in the day of using that, people had trolls, so I don't think that age ever existed. Maybe when it was just like two military guys on their computers hanging out. <laughs> as soon as there was the a DARPA scientist. As soon as there was a third person on the internet, one of them had to become a troll. <laughs> no, but overall I liked the movie and I was surprised like one of like I don't know what I was expecting, but it was it seemed surprisingly modern seeming. Like it didn't it didn't feel like it was a seventy year old movie. That's good to hear. There are some things I would say that definitely the age even outside of yeah. general things like, like, oh, you know, terrible treatment of women, uh, sending them out and going, <laughs> take her home, see that she gets home. Yeah. I think I wrote the driving about that even. Yeah. The driving scene in particular is kind of hilarious to me. The old cheesy special effect of, here, sit in a stationary car and we'll have a, you know, back plays and <laughs> plays a separate film reel on it so that we can record you driving. I don't think I even noticed that. Oh, man, you'll see it in a lot of old movies. It's always amusing because the actors will be trying to turn left and the film reel shows them turning right, various things like that. It's just, it always looks terrible. It was the CGI of the 1940s. One of the other things I noticed was that um, everybody today says Casablanca, but everybody in the movie was saying Casablanca. That is amusing, yeah. So that that stuck out to me every time somebody said the name of the, the town they were in. So some other things, since you didn't look anything up about this movie, I'm going to put some knowledge bombs on you here. Um, so what what did you feel like was the overall emotional center of the film? Hmm. Bit of a loaded question, but... <laughs> it's the most... I mean, the, the emotional scenes only started when What's-Her-Name and the other guy showed up who the, the Nazis were trying not to let leave Casablanca. Yeah, Victor Laszlo and Elsa. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, Elsa. Elsa is the one with ice, but, you know. <laughs> Interestingly enough, your brain may, uh, or you may not have noticed this, but your brain might have. The the La Marseille scene, so we were just talking about that a little bit ago with the Germans singing their song and the dueling mm-hmm. anthems going back to the French loyalists or the Allies' side and the Axis power. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing to note about that, almost all of the people in that scene, the the principal characters, the extras, everybody except for like Humphrey Bogart, basically every other person in that scene is an actual refugee from Nazi-occupied territory. So almost everybody in that scene is a, is a refugee from Nazi-occupied territory. A lot of them were actually Jews and others. Uh, oh, wow. Conrad Veidt. The guy who played the main Nazi in the film, Conrad Veidt, uh, or Veidt, I'm not sure how to, um, was openly anti-Nazi and had to flee the the, uh, Germans. Hmm. He had been one of the top German film stars of the 1920s and 30s, up until 33, I believe, when he decided to marry a Jewish. Yeah, I would not have known that. And it's just, uh, I think that's what makes that scene so riveting, and, and overall the film itself so riveting, is just... Every single person in there, the tears that come out of them and the, the emotions that come out of them, just the the emotional resonance of that scene. It's I cannot imagine how cathartic that moment must have been for a lot of those actors. Yeah. 
And it's just one of those. I did really like that scene. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those moments you can't get with grabbing extras, extras from a cattle call, you know, there's so much real emotion in there. Mm -hmm. I think that overall, that single scene is why the film is so memorable. I mean, there's amazing lines in this movie, this fantastic script writing, amazing imagery, uh, delightful performances from Bogart and Reigns and so many of the other actors. But that scene more than anything else to me is why this film is so incredibly riveting, even 75 years later. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's what I was trying to say earlier. It didn't seem like it was out of touch. Yeah. It's a very human film. Like I could actually connect with what was going on and the people that were in the movie. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it is just an incredibly, yeah, incredibly human film. And you know, there, the romance plot is, so central to it but really beyond that it's a story about you know overall so many of the actors i mean peter laurie was a hungarian jew the actor who played you know obviously the the one who played major strasser the i already mentioned he was married to a jewish woman and fled the nazis he actually donated his personal fortune to the british war effort and defeats a little sooner and uh, so many of the actors, I mean, there is just tons of them, especially the extra. One of the the man who plays the croupier in the film, uh, Emil, he actually was a French film star who got into playing bit parts in America when he came over after he fled the Nazis. So it's actually a film that has a story behind the film itself. But just a Yeah, that does. Um, that adds a lot to it, I think. And so, but going back a little bit, you know, let's let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and uh, take it back a step, though, and a little bit about some of the specific moments of the film. Were there any specific lines, you know, aside from the the dueling anthem scene, any specific lines or moments that really stood out to you? <laughs> I, I noticed how many lines from the movie I already knew just from pop culture that I never, like I knew some of them were from the movie, but I didn't know. I guess I had heard, but I didn't remember that We'll Always Have Paris was from this movie. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Like all these lines that I know that I never really knew from this movie. Yeah, pop culture probably makes a lot more sense to you now. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. So yeah, so many of them. Yeah, it's it's almost like every scene there's at least one or two lines. You know, round up the usual suspects. Um, interestingly enough, though, one of the lines that people swear up and is memorable from this, the line of "play it against" is actually not in the movie at all. Play it, Sam. Yeah, they just say, you know, play it, Sam. Play as time goes on. You know, they, they don't ever say Sam, which is mm-hmm. this. Almost, it, it, it's almost like the, you know, uh, do. It doesn't do anything line. You know, it's it's something that people swear up and down that it's in there, but it's not. <laughs> and, uh, but there, are, you're right. There are so many lines in here. Michelangelo's uh, bit from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is be so much more uh sensible to you now that you've seen this film (laughs) the other the other scene that stuck out is kind of this like slapstick comedy which um was a bit bit different from some of the rest of the film it was a scene with the refugees i don't remember what country they were from central europe somewhere who were talking about how they were learning english and speaking english to each other all the time now and talking about the like looking at the time but they kept saying such watch what is the watch now watch watch 10 watch (laughs) <laughs> yeah they were the most adorable german or whatever they were i think it was germany because in germany in german the word for i think watch like a wristwatch and the word for hour is the same word so the writer actually did their research no or like you said they were all actually 
you know, German or from the region. Yeah. And I actually do happen to know that extra was an actual German immigrant. Um, he actually ended up being in a whole series of, uh, wearing later hosen and such. So <laughs> because it's the forties, everybody had to, you know, keep those stereotypes going. <laughs> But one of my favorite things with the film is just the the whole setup of the movie. Um, just that opening sequence where you see the Nazis going out there and, and the French uh, shooting the suspect, just going you know going after anybody and everyone they can, and then leading it into Rick's bar. Mm-hmm. And you know you you see Rick, all you see is his hand, and see the cigarette go up, and then his face, and just the lighting and everything is so dramatic and, you know, black and white started as a limitation, but it almost feels like this is one of those films that is better with it. Right. That was one of the things I had noticed because I, because you and your wife had pointed out to me before the light and dark, the use of the light and the dark. Yeah. Just so incredibly stark. And there's so much, uh, attention to detail with trying to draw your eyes to certain things. And, it it almost feels like they don't need to use camera zooms or anything like that as much just because of the fact that they're able to get away with it with lighting. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, you talked about his cigarette. The, the other thing is nobody smokes in movies anymore. So yeah, that, was that does date it. That, that definitely does date it even more so than the black and white or any of the other elements. The fact that everybody was smoking and drinking. <laughs> yeah. People might film a black and white movie to be artsy now, but nobody smokes. It's true. It is very true. Or if they do smoke, something bad happens to that character to tell you, hey, smoking is bad, kids. <laughs> Which it is. Don't smoke it. But, <laughs> but I mean, with that, though, my God, Bogart's size. Which one was he? Seriously. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart, man. The lead character. <laughs> just every, every time, his eyes would just be the center of attention. It was just, it's just incredible. I don't know how his eyes do those things. The other thing that I kind of noticed that maybe wouldn't happen as much now or wouldn't be the protagonist or someone we were supposed to be supposed to like was the way Rick interacted with different people in his cafe, um, depending on how like they were in different classes, if they were just refugees or if they were uh, like the French um, commander, whoever it was, doesn't doesn't drink with anybody. Yeah, yeah. The way you, you know, never drinks with a customer, which just seemed more um, more harsh than they might do that with somebody today, unless you weren't supposed to like them. Yeah, I mean, his character at the very end of the film is so cynical. Bogart being as charming as he is, there's no way you'd like him, mm-hmm. and that really is just a strength of that casting job. Because without that na- actor's natural charisma, that part would have been so difficult to pull off. Especially with the relationship with the piano player Sam, um, you know, you spend that first part of the movie, the first twenty minutes or so, wondering why Sam is so loyal. Sam likes him so much. Because honestly, if my boss was that much of a jackass, I probably wouldn't be that loyal to him. <laughs> right. But fortunately, the the benefit of being able to go back in the flashbacks to this and see the relationship with them and see how different Rick was before Ilsa ripped his heart out and crapped all over it. I didn't know they had uh, flashbacks in the forties. <laughs> yes, they were invented back then. Actually, Flash, flashbacks. And then, like, memory, yeah, the other, memory the other actually thing that I had, uh, I think I said to you already, um, that was like that was the the music. That I'm like, hey, that sounds like the music from Star Trek, but it's twenty years before Star Trek, so 
So the music mm-hmm. from Star I just, Trek. I know it's just I don't watch very many things from that era. You know, anything before the seventies, I probably haven't seen it. Yeah, except for Star Trek. Except for Star Trek. But another one of my favorite moments that I took down here, just to kind of keep going through these, you know, little little moments here. Um, vultures, vultures everywhere, guy. You know the pick. I like this. I like that kept he, popping up every once he, in a while. Like picked somebody's like he scams somebody at the bar or something like that, and he walks away, and he runs into someone else who is a regular or like worked at the the cafe or something like that, and that guy immediately checks his pockets, even though they just accidentally vi- bumped into him. That was exactly the moment I was going to bring up. It's just so wonderful. Just the the fact that the guy just doesn't even miss a beat. He's just you know, <laughs> oh sorry, I bumped into you. Oh, okay, still there. <laughs> just such a great little moment. That actor once you know once again another one of the actors was a refugee. The uh, guy who actually was playing the part of the vultures everywhere guy, the the pickpocket. He actually one of the things I found out apparently he actually had one of the longest careers in film history. Ended up starting in <laughs> 1908 and went all the way up until he died in the 80s. See, does he edge out Christopher Lee? I think he does. Christopher Lee. The first things I know of, of with him were from the 50s. So. Just on a, just on strength of starting sooner. Exactly, those child actors look at you every time. But but yeah, those flashback scenes. Um, that was another thing that I was that I've always been kind of impressed with this film is when you go back and watch it, you realize that Rick is being called different things all the time by different characters. One of the, some of the characters call him Rick. Some of them call mm-hmm. him Richard. Claude Rains always calls him Ricky. Um, Sam always just calls him Moss because racism. Calls him what? Boss. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. But you know, it, all these different call him all these different things. It, it almost makes him sort of adaptable to the situation. You know, it, especially with the way that the Rick that we see in those flashbacks in Paris is so very different from the we see at the very beginning of the mm-hmm. film. And then all both of them are also just different from the Rick we see at the end of the film, who actually decides to be honorable and do the right thing, save Victor Laszlo and Ilsa. The character goes through so many changes and it almost feels like it's being set up by the fact that the characters all call him by a different name every time there is a new scene with him. <laughs> Whether that was intentional or not, your brain noticed it. Yeah, I, I, now that you say it, I did notice different people calling him different things. But I didn't really think much of it at the time. And that's kind of the beauty of, how, yes, I might be, you know, you might just overanalyze it and you know, break it down to death and twist it in every which direction. But your brain notices these things. So, so I'm I'm thinking yeah. the um the scene where they sing over the Germans is kind of the scene where I feel like I at that point I think he's changing his mind. Yeah, and you can see it almost too. Where I think that's also an impressive scene because it's the one moment where you can really understand why Elsa would love Victor Laszlo. <laughs> Because honestly, the, one of the one of the few flaws with this film is that that character is so stiff throughout so much of the film, and he's just so overshadowed by Humphrey Bogart. But that scene where he walks in and hears the German singing, and without even dropping a single moment, just walks right up to the band, gets him to sing the Marseille right away, and just there's so much power in him, and and Rick just stands by and lets it happen, and he gives the little nod to say, "Yeah, this is this is okay. I'm good with this." So you know that Rick is like you're saying that's you know that's the moment where Rick is changing, but it's it's almost a victory for Victor Laszlo in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which was sorely needed by that point. Otherwise, the, <laughs> that ending would have come, and 
there would have been riots for her not walking walking off with Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> that was that brings, I, it brings me to an interesting. Uh, go ahead. I was going to say at the the end of the movie when that's happening, just the the happenstance that they they couldn't have arranged that situation. Rick and the the French guy whose name I forget. Louis. Louis, yeah. Where um, the uh, Stasi, is that his name? Stasi, just shows up and is distracted. He shows up by himself uh, after Louis mm-hmm. called him. Yeah. And it's like they, they could not have arranged that. And it's the way like Louis takes advantage of the situation to say, oh, well, like, no harm. I guess we'll, uh, we'll move on the way we were before. Round up the usual suspects. <laughs> And there's actually an old Hollywood legend with that, that the film was unfinished at shooting and none of the actors knew how it would end. And I don't, I don't quite buy that, but uh, at least one part of it that I always enjoyed where supposedly the writers of the film were down the street and suddenly both blurted out, round up the usual suspects at the same time and figured out <laughs> that's how they could end the movie. <laughs> it's all related to... Uh, there was there was all kinds of ethical issues with uh, being able to sh- being able to show a woman leaving her husband for another man at the time because mm-hmm. Hollywood was so of uh, getting people up in arms about that sort of thing mm-hmm. that uh, they knew that they couldn't have Elsa leave for for Rick so they had to find some way to have them go off together but they had built Rick's up so hard so far that <laughs> hard to justify that you know yeah so now- that was the best way they got to do it. I have a question for you, maybe from your um, movie aficionado perspective. Do you think that limitation on morality that Hollywood placed upon them is as fruitful as the black and white medium is in producing unexpected or diff- you know, different or more interesting kinds of art? It's an interesting question. It definitely made them find ways around problems. I don't think that it's a good thing overall, but I don't, I'm the type of person who doesn't believe in putting any limitation on our, um, it's one of those things that it's, it's been used. It, it has given us some interesting plots along the way. I'm glad that it's not there anymore because it allows us to expand in different directions and it allows filmmakers to have more fun to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's entirely a bad thing that it was there at some point in the past. I don't think we should ever look back on our past with regret, except for the fact about Nazis. You know, fuck those guys. <laughs> Fucking Nazis. Fucking Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, I don't. I don't think that uh, I would ever want to go back to that era, though. Mm-hmm. That said, we got Casablanca out of it. Citizen Kane out of that era. <laughs> There's so many other films that we got out of it that I guess it can't be all bad if we were still able to get. But just yeah. imagine what we could have gotten if those kinds of restrictions hadn't been there. Right. And then you know today people can still film in black and white and put those restrictions on themselves, but they don't have to. Yep. Yep. You can you can and still write IQ think- even though EE e. Cummings exists. Exactly. So it's having more freedom is always a good thing, especially because now we can combine things in more interesting ways. And it could be a film where, you know, for instance, uh, uh, Ilsa and Rick could end up together, and yet it could still be shot in black and white. Please don't remake Casablanca, Hollywood. Don't take that <laughs> as advice. That, that's not a good idea. Well, that's uh, 
I understand that my my aversion to movies has kept me away from a lot of terrible movies that have come out recently. It's true. Um, All of which are remakes. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> something like 94% or 95% or something like that of all movies. It's It's absurd. But that said, there is still good stuff out there. Hopefully I'll be able to uh, things on there. Mm-hmm. I guess like when I was thinking I wouldn't like it, I was almost thinking like a, as if a person was not a reader and they went to read The Silmarillion, they're not going to like it. You know, I almost thought that was going to what was what was going to happen. I, I will say I was a little relieved when you said you liked it more than you thought you would, because uh, Casablanca as the first film, you know, we've got 130 movies on our list and I've got a random uh, random number generator that's as we go and Blanca was <laughs> the first one to come up which is hey that's great it's you know largely agreed to be one of the 10 greatest movies ever made it's an interesting one to start off with for somebody who doesn't know film really at all <laughs> you know obviously people of that era you know this was one of the, the earlier films that was made in the you know first 30 40 years of the film industry out of the you know 100 now that we have still it's it's not the kind of movie you just jump right into a lot in a lot of ways. <laughs> I was I was very glad that you did enjoy it. I was a little hesitant all weekend, getting all kinds of ice in my stomach. <laughs> well, your worries were for naught because I I did like it. See, and now you know that I'm always right. <laughs> Can't extrapolate from one data point. We'll have to see what the next movie is. Well, speaking of, the number generator has spoken. I did hook that up earlier today and went ahead and looked through the uh, looked through the list here. It looks like our next film is going to be Dead Poets Society. That's Robin Williams in it, right? It does have Robin Williams in it. I feel like I've seen scenes from it and, re- and or read quotes about it or from it. It is another one that is incredibly quotable, so you may well have. But it is excellent film. Ethan Hawke, Robin Williams... That guy who played Red's dad on that 70s show, it's a great movie. I guess he played Red, the Eric Foreman's dad, whatever. It's a terrible show, don't watch it. <laughs> oh, here. It was on in the period of time when you only you had to watch what was on TV. That That's exactly why I've seen it. Um, he was also in Star Trek VI, though. That There, you know that. <laughs> but no, it's a fantastic film. I, I hope that you'll enjoy that one. I think we are about at the end of our review of Casablanca here. So hopefully we'll be back soon with our review of Dead Poets Society. Do you have any last words for this film? Not really. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. Good to hear. Well, thank you very much for watching it, and thanks for listening.